Speaking on the subject today as we continue in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, the subject is the great separation, and I'm talking specifically about between doers and hearers only. And we read from the passage that uses that terminology last week, the book of James. The great separation between doers and hearers only. We're coming to the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, and it gets even more solemn. It gets more important, I think. When Jesus said these words in verse 24, therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man, who built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at His doctrine. For He taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. And my prayer has been, before I ever got in the pulpit today, not so much asking God to cause us to be astonished at the Word, but to be impacted by it. I'm afraid we hear it again and again and again, it's just like water off a duck's back. But as Jesus winds up His message, these words literally stun His audience, stun them. We're not stunned anymore. We've been desensitized by the media. But I pray the Spirit of God will get a hold of our hearts. As I said last week in setting the stage for this passage, Jesus is wrapping up His classic sermon. I'm just getting started today. Jesus was wrapping it up with these verses. His text, every sermon has a text, right? And the text of Jesus' sermon was back in chapter 5, verse 20, where He said, For I say unto you, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, who were considered to be pretty righteous, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. That was His text. The rest of the sermon is expounding on the text. But now he's done with the expounding, he's done with the exhortation, he's done with the instruction, and he's come to the application. Every good sermon has an application. It's a searching application. And it comes down to this, two questions. And I ask you these same two questions. Have you really heard what I've been saying? That's what Jesus said. Have you really heard it? And secondly, will you set out to obey what you have heard? I appreciate people that say a nice word at the end of the service and say, Pastor, thank you for the message, or that was a blessing, or that helped me. I really appreciate that. But the greatest commendation to any message is when you go home and put it into practice, even if you never say a word to me. Don't try to pay Jesus a compliment. He won't receive any flattery. He's not open to your saying, but what a masterful sermon. Oh, you're the best preacher I ever heard. Oh, you really gave it to the Pharisees today. No, that doesn't cut it with Jesus. 
He can only be worshiped and obeyed. Now, as we get into these verses, the last words in red, if you have a red letter edition of the Bible, the last words in red for this sermon, Jesus isn't changing the subject or the solemn tone of the preceding verses where he pronounces to some who expect to be admitted to heaven, depart from me, I never knew you, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Those are pretty heavy words. Those are pretty solemn words. But the tone has not changed. As Jesus goes into these familiar verses about the wise man and the foolish man, and we all remember the chorus that we sang from little children, the wise man built his house upon the rock, the foolish man built his house upon the sand. Probably coming back to you now as I say these words. But in these words about the wise man and the foolish builder, Jesus is maintaining that tone. He's warning of the danger of a mere, are you listening? A mere external profession without the genuine experience of the new birth that alone is the basis for building a life of good works that pleases God. It comes down to the foundation of the Word of God, as we read in 1 Peter 1, verse 23. In verses 15 through 20, Jesus effectively said, well, He just came out and said it, beware of false prophets. You wonder why I name names from the pulpit, and some people get offended. Some people leave and never come back. But I'm in pretty good company. The Apostle Paul named names. The Apostle John named names. Jesus named names. And Jesus said, beware of false prophets. But here in verse 21 and continuing really through the end of the chapter, the gist of what he's saying is beware of false professors. And so that's what I'm sharing with you today. Beware of false professors. It all comes down to this matter of building on the right foundation. And if you build on the right foundation, these verses teach us that you will be able to endure, survive the tribulations and the persecutions of this life and then the searching judgment to come. These are weighty words. These are classic words. You ignore them to your own peril. Spurgeon said, these closing words are as glowing coals or as sharp arrows of the bow. Jesus says, don't be just satisfied with hearing and learning. Some people just get, you know, knowledge puffeth up and they're, they're about to bust. They've learned so much, but they don't put it into practice. There's a double comparison in these verses. Jesus is comparing the two builders, and he's comparing the two houses. A lot of overlap as we talk about both of them. The contrast could not be starker. Well, last Sunday we established a glossary, you could say, of terms, which is so important to understand this parable. If it is a parable, Jesus doesn't call it a parable, but to understand this word picture, this story. Let's look at these terms briefly, otherwise you may not understand the rest of what I'm going to say. Remember who Jesus is speaking to. It's not just His disciples. He's speaking to the multitudes as we go back to Matthew 5 verse 1 and seeing the multitudes. He called them unto Him. He spoke to them. 
So there were some people who were uninitiated. They weren't like his disciples who'd been hearing his teaching for some time. So we need to understand some terms here. First of all, he says, first of all, he says, whosoever, whosoever shall hear these sayings of mine and do them. Who's he talking about? That means anybody. So what Jesus is saying in these verses is binding upon all men, saved or lost. No one can plead ignorance on the day of judgment. The Bible says we are all accountable to God. No one has an excuse, Jew or Gentile. The Jews knew the law of God, so they they were without excuse. They were accountable to Him for it. But Gentiles, though they did not have the law for many, many years, the law of Moses, they had the law written in their minds and hearts called the conscience. They also had the outer witness of God, creation. Now, we learned that in the opening chapters of the book of Romans. So this is for anybody and everybody. We need to take heed. He talks about a house. These men each built houses. What does the house represent? The house represents our life. Each one of us is a builder. You may have never hammered a nail in your life, but you are a builder, and I am a builder. What are we building? We're building a life. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it gives the materials that we're building with. One set is gold, silver, and precious stones. The other set is wood, hay, and stubble. All of that goes up in fire, won't it? And there's coming a day when the, the materials with which we build our life will be tested to see what sort, what kind they are. Notice the test here. I don't think I'm straining the words here to say that the words rain and floods and winds, all three of them mean something specifically. The rain descended, that sudden grievous circumstances. Jesus had talked about the rain previously when He talked about the fact that God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. He sends the sunshine on the just and the unjust. But rain doesn't just have benevolent uh, properties about it. Sometimes the rain can be destructive, can it? All of us experience both common blessings and common troubles. The Bible says we're all born under trouble as the sparks fly upward. That's just the common lot of humanity. God is not picking on you. God is not picking on me when He sends the rain of unpleasant trials our way. There hath no temptation, there hath no trial taken you, but such as is common to man, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. So there's the rain that descends. And everybody gets rain sooner or later. Some may go a long time without it, but everybody gets it. And then the floods. We talked about those floods last week. The floods represent seeping worldliness or in some cases, sweeping worldliness. And the floods came. Oh, how the world encroaches upon us and beats on us and sweeps before it everything in its path. There's more of the world in the church than we want to admit. And how we need to take a stand against the world at every juncture. That's the spirit of the age. It affects all of us.
the floods, sweeping floods. Then there's the winds. The winds blew, twice it says this. This speaks of the spirit realm. This speaks of satanic attacks. The spirit realm in the New Testament is represented by wind or air. Satan is the prince of the power of the air, the atmosphere. The sad truth is, and I'll say it again, the devil doesn't have to face most Christians head on. They don't pose that much of a threat to him. The flesh and the world serve his purposes very well. But for those of us, and I hope I can say us, for those of us who learn the secret of triumphing over the world and of denying and mortifying the flesh, let me tell you something, Satan is going to meet you head on. And he does it with abominable suggestions and terrible temptations. If you don't believe me, you read the greatest saints of history and their candid admission of how Satan attacked them. Satan doesn't respect your quiet times. Satan doesn't respect your being in church this morning. Some of you who's gotten thinking about unworthy thoughts right now, your mind is a million miles away. The rain, the floods, the winds. But then there's the rock. The wise man built his house upon a rock. What does the rock represent? The rock represents not just Christ himself, but the teachings of Christ. Jesus said, verse 24, Whosoever heareth and doeth these sayings of mine, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And last Sunday we sang the song, and we'll sing it again as we close today. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent what? Word. The Bible. So I ask without hesitation or apology, is the foundation of your life the Bible? Or do you bristle at the thought of being one of those Bible-toting fundamentalists? Do you really venerate the Word of God? Is it your chart and compass? Is it your manual for living? Do you stand in judgment on the Bible, or do you let the Bible stand in judgment on you? Is it sufficient, or do you need to hear what Dr. Bottlestopper has to say, and what this authority and that authority says, and 20 years from now it'll be different, if not earlier? The rock is the unchanging, immovable teachings of Jesus Christ. But there's the sand. We not only say sinking sand, but we often say shifting sand. Why? Because sand takes the shape of whatever it's squeezed in or on. And so the sand here represents subjective ideas rather than objective truth. And we say, well, I think, this is what I believe. Really, that doesn't matter too much. I don't mean to be unkind. The only thing that matters is, thus 
saith the Lord. Interestingly enough, the capital city of one of the Middle Eastern countries, the country of Jordan, is the city of Amman. And that name Amman comes from the Greek word for sand. Isn't that interesting? And I did a little checking. Amman, Jordan is built on 19 rolling hills of red sand and gold sand. We live in a day when truth is no longer regarded by most people as something objective and fixed, like an immovable rock. We talk about truth, and we use such terms as truth that works for you and truth that works for me, as if it could be totally different, even diametrically opposite truths, but they're still truths. Sinful man really thinks that he knows enough to stand in judgment on the Bible. And so the foundations of our society keep shifting. Our morals are in flux. And what do we call that? Progressivism. God doesn't call it that. He treats it as being retrogressive. A returning to the times of the book of Judges, when every man did that which was right in his own eyes, and the result was chaos and disorder, and God had to step in and judge. And he's patient, and he's long-suffering, but the time is coming in the United States of America, so-called Christian America, God is going to step in and judge, or he'll have to resurrect Sodom and Gomorrah and apologize. Please note with me the difference between the two builders. In a preliminary way, let's look at the superficial similarities, and then it'll help us appreciate the differences even more. These houses looked alike. If a real estate agent had given you a virtual tour and pointed you to the website where you could get a virtual tour, there would not have been any significant difference between these two homes. The differences were probably just cosmetic. Furthermore, both builders were probably equally skilled in architecture. They stuck with the building. They finished their structures. It could not be said of either of these men, as it was said of another man that Jesus talked about, this man began to build and was not able to finish. No, they began to build and they finished. But the similarities are superficial. They had the same intent. They had the same desire. They wanted to build a house, both of them, in which they could live with their families. It was noble. If you, if you go to Israel today, you'll see that the, the common thing for most people that didn't have enough money to build their own house was they would just add on to mom and dad's house. And you could see the foundations over there. You could see where they just added rooms. You can see that in Capernaum right next to the synagogue. So it's a pretty big deal to be able to have your own home. It was a noble intent. This is what made a man feel like he was really a man. If he could build a house and he could have a place to bring his wife and call it home. In fact, in Bible times, a couple would get betrothed. They did say engaged. That's similar to our engagement, but much more binding. But often the marriage would not be consummated, are you listening, until the husband, the, the fiancé, would go and finish his house and sometimes he would come at midnight without any warning and take his wife and finish and consummate the marriage and take her home with him. 
but he wanted to finish his house first. They had the same intent, to build a home for their families. They were probably in the same location, the same locale, the same neighborhood. Jesus strongly implies this by teaching that the houses were near to each other. They were subject to precisely the same weather conditions. I think that's an important point, not just an incidental one. No one can say that good people don't have bad things happen to them. The same thing happened to the man that built the house on the rock that happened to the man that built his house on the sand. The storms of life will beat upon both the just and the unjust, just as God's common grace is is experienced by both. May I remind you this morning, God doesn't have His pets that are immune to trials and troubles and problems. Now, Satan insinuated that to God about the man Job. Satan insinuated to God, yeah, he's your pet. That's why you treat him like you do. Does does Job really fear you for nothing? We read in chapter 1. He went on to say, you put a hedge around him. You've insulated him from anything bad happening to him. But I tell you, God, just withdraw your hand from him and he will curse you. Read it. That's That's what the devil said to God. But God proved Satan wrong. And did you know something? I chuckle on that. God is still using His children, His church, to prove the devil wrong. That makes us pretty special. Ephesians 3 verse 10 talks about under the principalities and powers in heavenly places. That's the spirit realm. That's where the devil and his minions, his demons are. Unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. God is using us to teach Satan and his demons. Same thing happens to the man that built his house on the sand, the man that built his house on the rock. They probably had the same floor plan, the same design. On the outside, it looked the same, the doors, the shutters, the columns, the gables, the tile roof, the chimney. Most houses in this part of the world this time had a parapet. So much that these builders had in, in common, but it was just superficial. In reality, they were poles apart in their work and in their character. Similarities, just superficial. Just like similarities between church members can be so superficial. You can come to church and sit beside and stand up beside another member, and you both know the words to the hymns. That's great. I like it when people sing and sing out. You know the terminology for acceptable prayers. You have the same vocabulary. You talk about fellowship and worship and caring for one another and doing good deeds for the poor and the elderly and the disadvantaged. That's all great, wonderful, but these similarities are, can be just cosmetic and superficial. The test has not yet come that will separate the men from the boys, the tares from the wheat, the chaff from the true. But we know that the point Jesus wished to make in giving this story was to show the differences, the dissimilarities. So after talking about the superficial similarities, let's talk about the disastrous differences. 
There were key differences between these two men that resulted in the different, a difference in the way they built their house. But these differences were not obvious. Again, they were hidden and subtle. All the tares look so similar to the wheat, don't they? That's the whole point of Jesus giving that parable. The foolish virgins usually pass for the wise ones, unless people see what they have in their flask. Let's look at the foolish man. I know Jesus treats the the wise man first, but let's save the best till last here, okay? Let's talk about the foolish man. What are the characteristics of this foolish man that we should studiously avoid? Well, first of all, he was hasty. The foolish builder chose the hasty, easy way. He built on sand. He didn't have to do anything. Just start building. He didn't have to dig for footings. He didn't have to prepare the site. Didn't have to do any excavation. He didn't have to pour slab. You know, foolish people are always in a hurry. They want things done yesterday. We Americans are kind of that way. We get our fast food and mouse click reaction. And if we don't get it, we get pretty ugly about it. Would you take your Bible and turn to Isaiah 28, verse 16? I want you to see this verse, Isaiah 28, verse 16. It's interesting that this is within the context of foundations. The Bible warns us against being hasty. Isaiah 28, verse 16, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, there it is, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not, read those next two words with me, class, make haste. He that believeth, the the truly righteous and godly person, will not make haste. He's not impatient. He doesn't cut corners. May I remind you that though you can be saved in a moment, an instant of time, holiness and sanctification, there are no shortcuts to that. No shortcuts whatsoever. There's been a teaching around for 150 years approximately that says in effect, and I know I'm oversimplifying a little bit, just let go and let God have His way. Just by some crisis in your life, you can embark upon the Spirit-filled life, and you just let go and let God. You just have instant surrender, and all of a sudden, it's smooth sailing, and you just end up in the New Jerusalem without any more struggles. And that sounds so good, many, many people have fallen for it and become disillusioned with it when it doesn't work out that way. We're foolish if we think sanctification is something that can happen overnight. And because the fool is hasty, he's also superficial. I submit to you that the church in America, for the most part, is plagued with professors who are a mile wide and an inch deep. In the average church in America, even if it's an evangelical church, there is very little deep plowing with the Word of God. In the parallel account that that Jesus gives of this story in Luke, the writer Luke gives, I should say, it says that the wise man dug deep. That implies that his counterpart did not do so. 
He barely scratched the surface with his bottom floor. Perhaps all he wanted to make sure was that it, it was level. With sand, it's pretty easy to make it level initially. I have people come, come to me, and, and, and some don't say it to my face, some say it to others, and it doesn't bother me. But they'll say, Pastor, you go so deep in your preaching. I have to listen to it again and again. Sometimes I can't understand. I go away scratching my head. Now, I want to make sure you understand the Word of God, but I don't apologize for deep preaching. Shallow plows, shallow plows will not dig up the roots of stubborn sin. You didn't develop those enslaving habits overnight, and you don't get rid of them overnight. Deep, pointed preaching lays bare those roots and exposes them to the conscience. So if you have to get the CD and listen to it again or watch the live stream again, the archive, do it. Make sure you understand the Word of God. It alone is able to make you wise unto salvation. This foolish man was too hasty, obvious by the way he built. He was reluctant to listen. He was loath to listen. The foolish builder is unteachable. He refuses to listen to instructions. Do you know the book of Proverbs has a, has a word for that? You know what it calls somebody who despises his father's instruction? A fool. Now, you better not call somebody a fool because God says you'll be in danger of hellfire. But when God calls a man a fool, you can bet your bottom dollar he is a fool. God says in Hosea chapter 6, verse 4, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. True knowledge. We dare not trust our own instincts and ideas. As I shared last week, the Bible says in the book of Proverbs twice, not just once. When God says it once, you better listen. But when He says it twice, you better sit up and pay attention. Twice in the book of Proverbs, he says, there is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. That's pretty heavy stuff. Let's listen to God and not the world about this matter. The world will say, trust your heart. I hear it every commencement season in May and June. <laughs> Go with your gut. Trust your heart. Does that sound wrong to you? What does God say? God says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I beg you. I'm serious as a heart attack. I beg you, renounce your wisdom and your ideas and defer to God's. Let God be true, but every man a liar, the Bible says. This man was hasty. He was unteachable. Didn't want to listen. And closely allied with that, a corollary is he was impulsive. He didn't consult anybody. His attitude was, let's just get this house built. He never stopped to question himself as he built that foundation, that it was on top of sand. He never said what could happen. 
Is it possible that that river that runs close to the house and it looks so calm and so peaceful and pleasant in the summer may suddenly in the winter be swollen with the heavy rains or melting snows and become a raging cataract? And my beautiful little bungalow that I've built would be flooded out and swept away. Oh, he never stopped to think about that. He never consulted with the long-term residents in the neighborhood, is this house on a floodplain? What precautions should I take? Because if he had, no doubt one or more of the neighbors would have said, wait a minute, fella, friend, I've seen that lazy river turn into a veritable cataract. I've seen storms arise that will bring down the best-built houses. I strongly suggest that you dig deep and get down to the bedrock. Well, no doubt the foolish builder finished his house and moved in well before the wise builder if they started at about the same time. The sand was all smooth and ready for him. And walls can go up fast. Did you know that? I'm not much of a builder, but when I became a missionary to the Cayman Islands, I learned to build quick. Nobody else would do it. Yeah, I had to tear some things up and do it over. But there's a church still standing. Last I checked, anyway, okay. And I learned that you can frame up a wall pretty quickly. Even if you do it with a hammer and nails. Just lay it down on a slab, make sure you get the studs the right distance apart, make sure you got a plate, bottom plate and a top plate. Nail it together, get some help setting it up. You can do it in minutes. You can do a pretty good length of a wall and framed up in minutes. But oh, that foundation. It takes days and days. And often that's when the bad weather comes. And you don't have it in the dry, so you just got to wait till it dries out. You can't do anything in the mud. It takes time to, to lay a foundation. It takes time to build on the rock. And please don't think that I'm implying that all sudden conversions are false or shallow ones. Far from it. The Bible is filled with accounts of people who got saved instantly. Praise God for that. I think of that Philippian jailer. I preached on the jailer recently with one of the funerals. We've had a whole lot of funerals here lately. That jailer who heard Paul and Silas sing praises at midnight with their feet held fast in the stocks in the innermost prison, and he had been entrusted with them, and when he thought because of the earthquake that they were going to get gone, he started to take his own life, and Paul called out and said, do thyself no harm. All the prisoners are here. He called for a light. He called for a torch. Even if they'd had electricity, it would have gone out with that storm. He sprang into the cell and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the answer came back clearly and beautifully. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And that was after midnight when that took place. And before sunup, he and his house were all saved and baptized. That's pretty sudden conversion. I think of the conversion of the Apostle Paul. We often talk about the Damascus Road experience. I hope we know what that meant. Saul of Tarsus, that's what he was known as before he became Paul the Apostle. He was on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians, to bring them back to stand trial in Jerusalem. And if he had anything to do with it, to make sure they were executed for their faith. 
but there's a bright light from heaven. He gets knocked off of his high horse, and he hears the voice of Jesus saying, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who art thou, Lord? The answer came back, I'm Jesus, whom thou persecutest. And then he said, what wilt thou have me to do, Lord? And he wasn't just saying Mr. when he said Lord. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no man can say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Ghost. Thank God for sudden conversions. Some of the greatest people we're still talking about who have been used of God greatly had a dramatic southern, uh, sudden conversion. Sorry to say southern conversion. I don't know how southern was. But there are some whose sudden conversions are shallow ones. Oh, they come down the aisle all smiles. They may even shed a bucket load of tears here. But they go home and their lives are not changed. At the same time, many a child, a true child of God, mourns and laments over his slow progress in grace. Sometimes we're the last people to see our progress in sanctification. Others can see it before we do. Dear friend, don't be discouraged. Do not despair. If you are building slowly, that's okay, so long as you're building surely. And you'll have no cause to regret that deep digging. That deep digging. Well, that's the foolish man. We don't want to be like him. But let's close on a good note. The wise man. He's described in verse 24. He's described first, therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, Jesus said, and doeth them, I will liken him, I'll compare him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, we talked about that, and beat upon that house, and it fell not. It stood firm, as we say in the song, for it was founded upon a rock. Just take the opposite of, of the characteristics of the foolish builder, and you've got the wise builder. He's not hasty. He seeks guidance and counsel. He wants to build a house that will last. He doesn't let his feelings and emotions and sudden enthusiasm carry him away. He doesn't have this fanciful idea about a big deadline by which he has to have his house complete. You know, so many people want to get their house done by Christmas. Well, Christmas hadn't come yet back then, but he didn't say, I got to get this house done by Passover or Hanukkah. No artificially imposed deadlines. He was patient. Again, I say bad weather will invariably come when you're trying to work on a foundation. It happened to us in the home that we built. Once you get the roof on, you can work inside. But until then, you've got to be patient. This wise builder refused to take shortcuts. He didn't lie to the building inspector. He didn't use inferior materials just because he could obtain them sooner. He took the long look. He was building for the future and for all eventualities. He wanted his family to have a secure place to live. 
Oh, there's so many applications of this spiritually, but I can't resist just mentioning one of them this morning that I hope will be an encouragement to those of you who are saved and you're burdened about this theme that we have for the new year about winning our loved ones to Christ, influencing others and giving them the gospel and being bold in doing so. This applies to the soul winner. The Bible says in Proverbs 11, verse 30, he that winneth souls is wise. Why is he wise in heaven's esteem? Because he takes the long look. Daniel 12, verse 3 echoes that same thought. They that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. If there's somebody who's concerned about your soul, if there's somebody who wants to see you in heaven, don't condemn them. Don't give them a hard time. Thank God He's put somebody as a roadblock in your path. The soul winner's wise in heaven's esteem. Lastly, I want you to see very quickly the difference between the two houses. They've touched on the difference between the two builders. The important consideration here, as I've mentioned once, the difference between these two houses, the one built on the sand, the one built on the rock, it's not obvious. It's something that's for the most part unseen, but yet very vital. The difference is what's underground, the rock, the foundation. I've never known anybody to pass a beautiful home, no matter how many stories high it is, and say, wow, that must have a really superior foundation. I want to go in the crawl space. I can get, go, knock up, go up the door and knock, say, hey, can I examine your crawl space and see how you support this home? Maybe a few people do that if they're into that line of building. Not many. The house on the rock is unshakable. We've read those verses. The house on the rock stood firm, didn't budge. That's like the believer who's trusting Christ and His Word in this life. He's probably the word we would use, unflappable. The Apostle Paul was unflappable on board that ship going to Rome when the storm came, when the, probably a hurricane. And it tore it to pieces, and the sailors thought that they were going to lose their life. And they were about to just jump overboard. He said, you got to remain in the ship or you won't be saved. He was the one calm voice in over 200 people. That's the unflappable child of God. As we read in Psalm 112 at the beginning of the service, he shall not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. And by that, I don't mean to imply that he's some kind of stoic who has no feelings and he just steals himself with clenched teeth to endure all things. But it does mean that he's not always looking for the other shoe to drop. Some Christians are. You don't have to dread that. You can realize with a sovereign God that He loves His own. And as one writer has said, even the hand that smites us, because God does chasten all those that He loves, even the hand that smites us is love. That's where we ought to live, folks. That's where we can live. 
And then when the rest of the world around us is falling apart because of the economy or because of the current administration or because of COVID or because of anything, we're steady. It's not us, it's God. That's the storms of this life. But that's not all that's in view here. The believer who is trusting in Christ and His words can be confident in the final storm of death. And the Bible says after this, the judgment. We can say with Paul the Apostle quoting from the book of Isaiah, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? In my wife's class today, I think she was teaching about hope. And she talked, she contrasted the death of two men that died in the same year, just a few months apart. The great evangelist D.L. Moody in December of 1899, in the closing days of the, dec- of the century. And then the, the death of Robert Ingersoll, who was called the great agnostic, who hated Christ, who tried to turn people's faith away from Christ. Deal Moody, as he lay dying, it's well documented. This is not just fanciful embellishing. He was overheard to say, earth is receding. Heaven is opening. God is calling me. If this is death, this is sweet. There is no valley here. That's the way a true child of God can pass from this realm into the greatest realm of all. But if your house is on the sand, it's not like that's going to happen. The house on the sand is collapsible. We all remember singing from a child, the foolish man built his house upon the sand and the house on the sand fell smash, we usually say. Kind of like Humpty Dumpty, right? Great was the fall of him. Yes, trials from earth will come to every profession. Whether you're a true child of God or you just profess to be one, trials are going to come your way. And I'm not trying to be dramatic, but could I just say the big one is yet to come. The city of San Francisco has had a number of earthquakes over the years, even in recorded history. It's on the San Andreas Fault. The worst one in modern history was in 1906. Thousands were killed. There were some photographs that was when there were some photographs being taken, though they were the early kind. And it looks like a war zone. It looks apocalyptic. But the geologists that have studied the San Andreas Fault keep telling us repeatedly, the big one is yet to come. The big one is yet to come. Folks, the big judgment is yet to come. And unless you're anchored to the rock Jesus Christ, and you have driven your stake in the unmovable Word of God, unchanging Word of God, there will be no salvage from that total wreck. And the house of your life will never be built again. 
your ruin will be terrible because it will be eternal and final. Because the Bible says that whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You say, Pastor, are you trying to create an effect this morning? Oh, I wish I could. If you knew how awful that was, you would run to Jesus. You wouldn't wait till the end of the service. Will you examine your motivation? Will you examine your foundation? Test your faith. You can do all the right religious stuff and not have the heart that God demands. What I just read this morning are Christ's last words of warning in the Sermon on the Mount. If you don't heed His living voice in these verses, it's not likely you ever will. Do you hear Him speaking to you? I pray you will. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your precious word that warns us and enlightens us, that exposes that which is false because you love us. And it gives us the only valid criteria for examining the hope we have of eternal life. Please do your work in our hearts. Would you humble proud hearts? Would you break down hard hearts? Would you awaken deceived hearts? Would you reveal Jesus in His Word as the only sure foundation for the hope we have both now and for eternity? Do your work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.